Old Testament lesson today is found in 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Now Elijah the Tishbite, a Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from him and t- from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he rose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah." After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin in remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come today, we confess that your word is truth. And we ask God today for help that you help us and give us understanding, illumine our minds and bring all of this truth into application. And so we ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. 
Amen. During the spring of 2009, as Melissa and I were busy planting a church in Arlington, Virginia, we purchased an older home on the south side of Arlington. We knew there were some critical issues to address. We had a six-week window in which we could do so, and early on in the job, during some of the renovations, the contractor called me and asked me to come over to the house. I was quickly to learn that these were not good moments and these calls were not going to be pleasant. We walked out onto what was formerly a sleeping porch, if you're familiar with those. They were particularly common before air conditioning existed, and they were attached to the side of homes, and they were just simply open air. This sleeping porch had been closed in, and so there were windows, and it looked rather like part regular part of the house. But there were several problems. A bathroom had also been added to it. The contractor began to discuss the issues with me. The bathroom floor was rotten. The piping was done incorrectly. The foundation was cattywampus and the walls had no insulation. I asked him what all this meant. He said, this means new flooring, new drywall, new siding, new piping, new bathroom. In other words, a complete gut and redo. Now, in terms of our project, this is where it was a problem. This was catastrophic news. <laughs> This took us so far outside of budget and timetable and goals and all the things that we were trying to do. And so I asked him what my options were. He laid out those options, and there was one notable option that I wanted him to lay out that he didn't. I said, well, what about just demolishing it? Why not just take it off? It's just a little side addition to the house. We actually called it the side cart. I asked him how much that would cost. I was ready, just destroy the thing. My rationale was simple. Why work with such a compromised structure? Why even bother with it? The contractor gently walked me through why it was a bad idea. Though tempting to start over, he understood my rationale. He said, but this would be valuable space and that space was at a premium in our neighborhood and it would be a better investment just to fix it. And so we did it. And it turned out to be great in the long run. But as we consider 1 Kings 17, it's helpful to reflect on the experience. Because God has an extremely compromised church on his hand. More compromised than the little sleeping porch off the side of our former home. The northern tribe, since breaking off, from the southern kingdom of Judah has had idolatrous king after idolatrous king. From one generation to the next, it's grown worse and worse, and now everything has reached ahead in this man named Ahab. It's an ugly history, and it only grows darker. And so what does God do? What does God do with all of that compromise? What does he do with all of that idolatry? Does he just tear it down? And does he just decide to start over? Does he ignore it and act like it's not really happening? This morning, the critical question for us to ask and to answer is how does God deal with a compromised church? What does he do with it? And in 1 Kings 17, we'll see five things 
about God's way with his church when it's compromised. And so let's look at these briefly. First, God seeks the repentance of the church. If you follow into chapter 16 and verses 29 through 34, we're introduced to King Ahab. He's the son of Omri, and he began to reign over the northern tribes during the 38th year of King Asa, who we discussed last week. In verse 30, Ahab, like his fathers, receives a negative evaluation from God. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. However, the narrative doesn't stop there. There's also something unique, something notorious that's added to Ahab's record. Verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In verses 31 through 33, we see specifically what he did. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He goes on to build a temple for Baal in Samaria, and he constructs a shrine for Asherah, who was the consort goddess of Baal. And so what does God do with all this? With this Israelite king who's not only been compromised, following in the ways of Jeroboam, which was some type of synthesized Israelite religion, but he goes further. He builds a shrine to this foreign god. What does God do when the church is wrapped up in such compromise? We see it in verse 1. He sends a prophet. It's a man named Elijah. He's unknown. He's uncredentialed. And he is completely uninvited. We're not given any information about Elijah. We actually know nothing of him. He simply appears. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab. From nowhere the prophet comes. And the prophet delivers the word of the Lord to the king. This is what he says. As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. A drought, severe drought was to fall on the land, cutting off the supply chain that funds human life. Now for modern ears, this can sound somewhat arbitrary, but it's important to recognize the connection between the drought, that is what God by the prophet announced was going to happen, and the worship of Baal. In Canaanite mythology, Baal was the god of the storm, and he was also the god of the rain. And so by implication, because he was the god of the storm and the god of the rain, Baal was seen as the giver and sustainer of life. He gave fertility and gave everything that was needed for life. And so by declaring that God would cut off the dew and that God would cut off the rain, Elijah was directly confronting the alleged powers of Baal. This was a contest of sorts. What Baal claimed to supply, God, the God of Israel, was now going to shut down. And no one, especially Ahab, would have missed that message. It was all exceedingly clear. And friends, this is what God does for a compromised church. He sends prophets, 
He sends messengers. He sends ministers with his word. And he challenges the empty things that we transfer our trust and allegiance to. And he challenges us, not in order just simply to condemn the church, to show us how naughty we've been, but we have to remember that the challenge comes in order to provoke and to induce repentance and reform. This is always the point of why God sends prophets to the church, of why God sends ministers of his word to the church. And in this, Ahab was given a choice. He was given a choice to serve Baal, and the heavens will be sealed up, and the ground will become hard as bronze. Or he's given the choice to serve God, the creator and sustainer of all of life, and the rains will fall, giving life to everything. And friends, this is the role of the prophet, yesterday and today, to call the church to renewal through faith and repentance, looking to God to preserve her life, renouncing those things that look to God for life that are outside of him. Anything that we transfer our trust into to provide wholeness and well-being. And so this is where it begins. God deals with the compromised church by calling it to repentance. But second, we also see in our passage that he exercises discipline. Elijah delivers the word of the Lord to Ahab. He comes from nowhere and the rains stopped immediately. Then in verses 2 through 3, God suddenly removes Elijah from the scene. Just as he came from nowhere, he seemingly just disappears. Elijah hears the word of the Lord after he speaks to Ahab. And this is the message. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And so just as quickly as he appears in the story, he suddenly disappears from public view, and we have to ask the question, why? Why does he just simply disappear? The answer is rather simple. As long as Ahab was going to persist in his idolatry, there was going to be a drought. But this drought was not only going to be of rain. This drought would also be something associated with a drought of God's word. The word like the rain was cut off for a time and Elijah is taken out of the promised land east of the Jordan into the wilderness. And in doing this, God was allowing the church to be turned over to its own desires and to its own devices. They were being left to work it out with Baal. If Baal is truly the God who gives and sustains life, then allow him to overcome this drought. Perhaps he would come through in the pinch. And friends, this is hard for us today. It's hard for us to hear as we are a bit allergic as a culture to ideas of discipline. We quickly label them as abusive, as manipulative, or as toxic. And so when we apply this category of discipline to God, it can seem to be antiquated and quite outdated. But it's important for us to recognize that in the hands of God, discipline is a gift. 
In fact, what scripture affirms in Proverbs 3 is that the Lord exercises discipline as an act of love. The New Testament quotes the same passage in Hebrews 12. That God lovingly disciplines those who he has committed to in order to bring us to repentance, in order to strengthen us, to renew our faith. God disciplines us out of his love in order to renew us. And so he brings a drought and famine, not as payback, but in order to provoke Israel to search their own hearts, to look at themselves, to examine themselves, to look at their false and their empty gods and see if they're making good on what they have promised. And so he exercises discipline with his compromised church. Third, we also see that in the midst of all this compromise, that God sustains his faithful ones, those who continue to trust him and to follow him. So though the church in a broad sense is under discipline here, that the northern tribes have gone apostate and departed from the truth of God's word, we also find, we see a picture in Elijah of God's tender care for his own, his true church, those who truly believe, those who continue to follow him, who are within the corrupted, visible church. And this is always the way it it is when the church is corrupted and has moved away from God. There will always be a faithful remnant in the midst of her. And the message that comes through Elijah the prophet is that God doesn't forsake that community, that he sustains that faithful church. And so in verses 4 and 5, we see the sustenance in a miraculous way, truly miraculous way, as God nourishes the prophet with food and with drink. Morning and evening, the ravens deliver food to him in a beautiful image. And daily, the brook continued to flow. Elijah was well supplied east of the Jordan in the wilderness. He was being kept safe from all harm by God himself. And friends, this is what the Lord does for his own in the midst of corrupt times. He protects the true church within the corrupt external form of the church. He hides us, spiritually protecting us from the dangers that lurk all about. And he nurtures us, supplying every one of our spiritual needs, just as he did for Elijah, sending ravens and providing a brook. It's in the midst of a compromised church culture that the challenge for us is to believe that God continues to to sustain, that he continues to give, that he continues to uphold. Because friends, we don't always understand the mysterious ways of God. We can't understand all of his wisdom and how he is at work. And yes, his discipline when he brings it sometimes on the broader culture also impacts those faithful as well. But in the midst of all of that, what we are promised is that God will sustain us that God has not forgotten us, that God will continue to work among us, that he gives Elijah a stream, that he gives him meat in the morning and in the evening, providing all of his needs. This is the promise that's given to us. Fourth, we also see that God continues in the midst of all of this compromise. He continues with his mission, 
If you look in verse 7, you'll see almost inexplicably the brook dries up. This gift that God had given to Elijah to nurture his life dries up because there was no rain. It may seem that God somehow fell down on the job and had forgotten Elijah, but we see rather that God is redirecting Elijah's course. And this is always God's way with us in his providence in which oftentimes we see something bitter and God has great plans for us through it. And so he redirects Elijah and sends him to Zarephath. The word of the Lord comes to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so Elijah arrives there in Zarephath. It's important to appreciate the location of this city. It is in the land of Sidon, which is the home of Baal worship. Two great cities, Tyre and Sidon, and Zarephath is located between them. It is the homeland of the Phoenicians. It is the homeland of Baal. And so Elijah is sent there to this place, and he requests that this widow would give him water and bread. She explains that she only has a handful of flour and a little bit of oil. She's preparing one last meal, and it lets us know how severe the drought is. Then she is going to die. And so in verse 14, Elijah explains to her that the jar of flour will not be empty. It will not be spent. It will continue to replenish itself. That the oil will not run dry. That it too will continue to replenish itself. And so she obeys the prophet. And she goes and she begins to bake. And they had abundant provision. And you ask, what is going on in this very strange encounter? And friends, it's far more than flour and oil. But what is happening here? is that Israel, the church, had forsaken its broader mission. Because you remember that when God called Abraham, he didn't call him simply to be a blessing unto his own family. But he says that the family of Abraham was to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That all the families of the nations would be blessed through Abraham and through his children and his children's children. That they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But Israel here is compromised. And rather than being a blessing to the nations, they are following the way of the nations. They brought in the worship of the gods of the nations. And rather than speaking God's truth and declaring God's light to the world, they become compromised by it. But it's important to note that this doesn't stop God from fulfilling his agenda. It doesn't stop God from fulfilling his mission. He's determined and he's decided. He sends the prophet into the midst of the homeland of Baal and he blesses the nations. At the end of the passage in verse 24, we see the response of this widow. It's of course after the resurrection of his son, which we'll discuss in a moment. The woman says to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And friends, this is critical for us to appreciate that even in times when the church is compromised, God doesn't somehow wring his hands and give up. He doesn't simply withdraw. But rather we're to see that he will work over and against, that he will work above and beyond, 
that he will still accomplish his purpose And his purpose is for the gospel to go to all the ends of the earth. For every tribe and tongue to name the name of Jesus. For all to know that he's the savior of all peoples. He is the desire of the nations. And only he reconciles us to God. And he's committed to that. And he doesn't fail at it. And so even in the midst of compromise, he continues in his mission. And finally, in the midst of all this compromise... We see that God also contends with our idols. He contends with those things that we transfer our trust to. In verses 17 through 24, we learn about the death of this widow's son. Obviously, she's devastated. She's even angry with Elijah. She asks him why he has come to trouble her in this way. But then another miracle takes place. God raises the boy from the dead. It's a unique moment. Maybe easy for us to miss, but the location of this miracle is critical. It is in the heart of Baal's territory, the land that he allegedly governed. And Elijah, whose name literally means Yahweh is my God, the God of Israel is my God, raised the boy from the dead. And he did so by praying to the Lord God of Israel. There was no mistake. Everyone in the community of Zarephath would have known the boy was dead. And then how did he come back to life? It was not by Baal. It was by the living God of Israel. And so this is the ultimate proof. The ultimate proof given to this widow of God's authority. Because not only did he rescue her from impending death before her last meal, now he rescues her son who's been swallowed up by death. He's brought back to life. And here God has crossed the border between life and death and it begs a series of questions. It begs us to ask a series of questions. Is there any border then that he cannot cross? Is there anything that confines him? Is there any kingdom in which he has no authority? Is there a power over which he has no power? And the answer comes back resoundingly clear from 1 Kings 17. No. No, there is no border that he cannot cross. He crosses between death and life and he brings the dead back to life. There is no kingdom into which he has no authority. He crosses into the land of Sidon, the alleged home of Baal, and he has his way and operates with his authority. And there is no power over which he has no power. He renders death inert. He bows the knee to no one. And this is his means of exposing the idols. The empty things in which we trust, he contends with them and he demonstrates that they have nothing to offer. Whatever they may claim, they come to nothing. And friends, he does all of this in order to appeal to the church, even to appeal to us today that we come and we hear and we listen and we repair ourselves to him. The prophet Hosea, ministering some years later to these same 
northern tribes. As he closes his works, chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. And this is how God deals with a compromised church. He seeks our repentance. He exercises discipline. He sustains the faithful. He continues on with his mission despite our hard-headedness. He contends with our idols. And he does all this so that we return. So that we repair ourselves to him. That we come back knowing that his steadfast love is new every morning. That he is faithful and true. And that if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That this is his promise in his son, Jesus. And he restores and renews the church. And this is the church's one foundation. It's the church's one sure hope. It's the one place that we can stand in safety. And friends, this is how the Lord deals with us. In all of his patience. In all of his kindness. And what we may even consider to be bitter is designed to be sweet, to draw us to him. And so let's see this gracious and this faithful God and let's turn to him and let's ask for his help. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge every bit of our weakness we know that our hearts are prone to wonder. We know that we often transfer our trust and turn to other things for wholeness and well-being. But yet you are a gracious God. And you deal with compromise in a way that draws us back to you. And so give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see your gracious ways with us. And may we turn. God, we thank you for all of your grace and favor that is ours in your son, Jesus. And may we not depart from that. May we hold fast, continue to sustain us, continue to nourish us, provide for us in every way as we see you as the God who's the sustainer and giver of all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.